Hi, everyone, and welcome to Food Disruptors, an IFT podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives from some of the brightest minds in the science of food. Each episode, our guests discuss the ever-changing intersection of entrepreneurship, innovation, and science, and their role in advancing the global food system. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden, and today we're joined by Dr. William Mosley, the DeWitt Wallace Professor of Geography and Director of the Food, Agriculture, and Society Program at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Dr. Barbara Berlingame, a Professor of Nutrition and Food Systems at Massey University's College of Health. Both Dr. Mosley and Dr. Berlingame are members of the steering committee for the high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition. They contributed to the FAO's high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition's 15th report that's available online. As background, the high-level panel of experts on food security and nutrition was established as part of the 2009 reform of the International Governance of Food Security to advise the UN Committee on World Food Security, which is the foremost intergovernmental and international program dealing with food security and nutrition. The HLPE aims to facilitate policy debates and inform policymaking by providing independent, comprehensive, and evidence-based analysis and advice at the request of the UN Committee. So today we're going to discuss the issue of global hunger, which we know has been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But first, thank you both for joining me. Welcome. Pleasure to be here. So first, let's talk about the report. What do our listeners need to know about the state of food security and nutrition in the world? Sure. I mean, uh, the situation is not ideal. We're not on track. to achieve uh, sustainable development goal number two of ending hunger by 2030. Currently, we have about 821 million people who are experiencing chronic undernourishment. About 45% of children who die under the age of five, it's related to poor nutrition. We have another 1.9 billion people who are overweight, 150 million who are obese, and we have 1.5 billion people who are um, suffering from micronutrient deficiencies. And as you mentioned, this has been exacerbated by COVID-19. Earlier in the year, uh, the World Food Program estimated that the number of people facing acute hunger would double uh, during the the pandemic. So it it seems really kind of like a, a dire situation that was just made even worse by the pandemic. Barbara, what are your thoughts here? Yes, it is a dire situation, but it's not a new situation. True, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. But uh, if we go back to, say, 1992 for the uh, International Congress of Nutrition hosted by FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN and WHO, World Health, um, the term um, food security was really brought into the consciousness of of the world through that um, initiative. And then a few years later was the World Food Summit uh, that led to the creation of the Committee on World Food Security. Uh, And that was 1996. I joined FAO in 1998 and uh, have been working on issues of hunger since then. Uh, And before the high-level panel of experts was formed, there was a flagship publication from FAO, The State of Food Insecurity in the World. And that has cataloged the the progress and the lack of progress in dealing with hunger um, over these last couple of decades. So it is, it's it's stagnant in a way, uh, uh, exacerbated uh, during 
certain crises uh, and improving occasionally, but really it's been a longstanding chronic. And it's not just quantity of food. In fact, it isn't quantity of food. It's as much quality of food. But uh, as we go on, I think uh, one of the things that, uh, that we'll talk about is the definition of food security. And that brings in the different issues. Right. Yeah, because exactly like you're saying, of course, some people might argue that we just need to produce more food to feed this you know, growing global population. But as you alluded to, it, it really isn't that simple and it overlooks um, a lot of other issues that need to fill into that. So maybe this would be a good time, Barbara, to you know, define food security and also maybe talk about some of the recommendations that the report provides on how we can effectively combat hunger leading into 2030. Okay. The classic definition of food security, uh, it, it's really defined by the dimensions of food security. And historically, uh, since the 1990s, there have been four. Accessibility, availability, utilization, and stability. And one of the unique and important things that has come out of the high-level panel uh, work and is included in the 15th report uh, that Bill and I have been involved with is the addition of two new dimensions to the definition. Agency, and maybe Bill can talk better about that one than I can, and sustainability. And sustainability uh, is, is key in so many ways. It's environmental sustainability um, and, and other forms of sustainability. But, uh, but really, my work has focused on sustainable diets and sustainable food systems. And it is key that this is brought into the definition of food security because without the sustainability dimension, there is no hope for achieving food security in the world. And so, Barbara, maybe to build on the idea of the um, essential nature of sustainable diets, is this simply because if we, if we can't adhere to diets that are sustainable, then it's you know going to be increasingly harder to produce the quantities of food that are needed? Or can you elaborate a little bit on, on why it's so essential? Sure. Uh, well, you have to understand the different um, lenses through which the different sectors view diet, view food security, and view uh, nutrition. The typical agriculture sector definition of food security goes back to dietary energy supply. In other words, uh, calculating the um, total production of food, recalculating that as dietary energy, kilocalories or kilojoules, and then um, measuring that against the requirement of the populations. Looking, it's a very complex algorithm looking at the different distribution of ages within a country, uh, et cetera, and, and then calculating what the energy requirement is and then matching that um, or hopefully exceeding uh, the production of dietary energy. But what that um, doesn't do is uh, address the health sector's definition of, um, of good nutrition, which looks at not just dietary energy, but protein and high quality protein, uh, fat and individual fatty acids, and micronutrients, uh, vitamins and minerals, and other beneficial bioactive components in food. Um, but, then, uh, but then there's a third dimension uh, sector-wise that can be added, and that is the environment sector. 
because in order to achieve this, uh, it has to be done in a in an environmentally sustainable way. And we know that with the agriculture's uh, dominating the the agenda for food security, that the goal had been all out production, increasing production. The um, the initiatives had been to bridge the yield gap and the environment sector was um, ignored. In fact, the efforts of the environment sector were often in conflict with the efforts of the agriculture sector and vice versa. So we have to look at the um, those three sectors together to identify the, the way forward uh, for achieving sustainable diets. And I, I want to continue talking about the other the other dimension that you mentioned that was added, and that's agency, the the dimension of agency to food security. Uh, William, could you touch on that a little bit for us? Yeah, agency basically refers to individuals and groups um, being, you know, able to define uh, the type of food that they're consuming and the nature of the food system they're living in. And obviously there are um, key enabling conditions. Um, some uh, individuals and groups are much more marginalized than others. And so their agency is limited. And then we have other entities that have a um, sort of disproportionate influence on the food system. And frankly, you know, historically, some corporations, food corporations, providers of agricultural inputs have had a huge influence on, on defining the nature of the system. So you need sort of a, a leveling out so that all actors are able to express their needs and desires and influence the, the nature of the system. So obviously, Food security is a complex issue, and the addition of the, these two other dimensions, hopefully we can at least begin to, to talk about it even more effectively. And I know this is a high-level panel, but I'm curious if there are any specific recommendations from the report that either of you would want to touch on right now. So the report outlines four broad policy shifts that need to happen. So I'll just mention those and then I'll give you two specific examples for recommendations. So the report argues that we need, you know, we need a radical transformation of food systems. We can't be narrowly focused on production, but we have to be thinking about, you know, producing more healthy food in a sustainable way. We need to recognize that food system, uh, food security and nutrition um, is interconnected with many other sectors we you know we can't think about it solely you know in the ministry of agriculture and the ministry of health or the ministry of finance we have to think about it across all of these um, different sectors we need to be thinking about not just hunger but malnutrition in all its form including uh, obesity um, and then we need to consider food security in nutrition in particular context. It doesn't manifest itself uniformly you know, around the world. But in that sort of first bucket, thinking about the transformation of food systems, we you know, in particular recommend more regenerative production systems uh, such as agroecology. And agroecology 
is basically applying uh, ecology to farm fields, thinking about you know crops and insect communities and the interactions between them and leveraging that to produce more food. And that's useful in a couple of different ways. Instead of using a lot of inputs, you're leveraging these ecological interactions um, to produce more. And so you're losing, using less energy, which is uh, good for the climate, but also it tends to be a lower cost approach. And that means it's more accessible to poor farmers. And one of the, the big challenges here is how do you help the poorest of the poor access uh, more food? And there's a big group of rural poor small farmers that historically have not been able to access, you know, the traditional technologies of hybrid, hybrid seeds, pesticides, insecticides. Yes, a couple of the high level recommendations uh, include the following, and this is, this is extremely important, to uphold the central role of the right to food and other human rights in food security and nutrition. That was key. The focus, the framework around our report was the right to food. And it includes statements like reframe the right to food as freedom from hunger and all forms of malnutrition. And this includes things like underweight, overweight, obesity, micronutrient deficiencies, and communicable diseases that are food-based. And to reaffirm the importance of safe and nutritious food, along with freedom from hunger. And the other, uh, the other important statement in our report is that the CFS, the Committee on World Food Security, should formally strengthen what is called the Voluntary Guidelines on the Right to Food. Uh, now, Voluntary Guidelines on the Right to Food, uh, there is a long title to this, uh, to this document, and that is Voluntary Guidelines to Support the Progressive Realization of the right to food in the context of national food security. That is a very weak statement. It doesn't uh, put the onus on governments uh, and it doesn't, it, it allows low progress uh, or no progress at all. And our high level panel has recommended that uh, the CFS should uh, revise that and move from the progressive realization to unconditional realization of the right to food. Fascinating. And so I think that you're touching on a lot of the, again, importance of making sure that we're describing this and, and correctly advocating for it across these different governments and, and different sectors, as you mentioned. Is that is that right? Yeah. And, and also um, the, the multi-sectoral and transdisciplinary nature of hunger uh, is, uh, is well-defined. And as Bill mentioned, there are numerous sectors that need to be involved. And, and the ones that are particularly identified in our report, mainly because they've been working across purposes, are the ones I mentioned earlier, agriculture, health, and the environment. And our report is very clear that these sectors need to work together. Right. Absolutely. I would just chime in here that the COVID-19 food crisis is an excellent example of the need to work across sectors and think across disciplinary boundaries. I mean, we have a disease that we think emerged from pangolins or bats and 
farming systems, disrupting natural ecosystems likely has something to do that. This gives uh, rise to a virus. Governments respond, and one of the ways they responded was through uh, lockdowns or shutting down, opening our markets, and this had consequences for employment and access to food. And then this has knock-on impacts for um, food security. So it's like Barbara was mentioning, it's really important that we think across all of these sectors and um, work for the harmonization of policy. You're right. It's definitely not something that is, you know, singular onto itself. It, and realizing that it can stem from and affect multiple sectors is, is paramount. So I want to take another look into one of the recommendations that, Barbara, you alluded to earlier um, in our conversation, but one of the recommendations in the report includes supporting healthy food choices from sustainable agriculture. So if you all each wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about the recommendation and, and what plays into it, uh, whether it's the role of obesity, the importance of nutritional diversity, or the significance of sustainable diets. Um, so Barbara, why don't, why don't you start? All right. I, I, it's important to note as background that agrobiodiversity has been declining at a rapid pace. Uh, the world has more than 75,000 edible plants, for example, but just a couple of hundred species are used regularly. And the uh, grain supply or the, the starchy staple food supply represents 56% of the total energy supply. That number changes year by year with the new calculations. And just nine crops supply 75% of food energy. And on top of that, most of this food energy, whether it's rice or maize or wheat, um, is consumed in a highly re refined form. In other words, most of the micronutrients are removed from it. So, so to bring back the lost agrobiodiversity, to, to give, uh, give priority or, or give recognition to the many species that are neglected and underutilized that used to be part of a sustainable food system and a sustainable diet, bring those back into production uh, they are often adapted and resilient uh, to the, the ecosystem where, where they come from, uh, and they typically uh, can provide much more nutrients, uh, many more micronutrients, um, and the improve the quality of the diet more than the dietary energy supply um, metric. And, uh, and bringing in the environment sector to this whole issue, uh, we have um, stated in the report that we need to facilitate biodiversity conservation through sustainable use. Now, this is food biodiversity, and it is best conserved, as is a lot of biodiversity, through sustainable use, not through um, putting them in protected um, spaces uh, not to be utilized. And then by promoting the production and consumption of these nutritionally rich neglected and unutilized species and varieties, local varieties of commonly used species. And if I could give one example, uh, this has been mostly uh, identified and, and clarified scientifically through the study of traditional food systems of indigenous peoples. And we have found that uh, in many parts of the world, the indigenous peoples 
diets, once they move from their traditional diets to a modern diet, uh, they suffer much more greatly from diet-related chronic diseases. Uh, and the communities that adhere to their uh, traditional diets, and this includes not just indigenous communities that we think of in, um, in developing countries, but also the Mediterranean diet, as well, for example. People who adhere to those traditional diets have much greater micronutrient content in their diets, suffer much less from diet-related chronic diseases uh, and obesity, for example. So, uh, and, and one of my favorite examples relates to banana biodiversity. It's a huge biodiversity of bananas. We recognize a single banana in most parts of the world, Cavendish banana. Uh, and that has basically no beta carotene. There are bananas uh, in many Pacific Island countries, and I live on a big Pacific Island country right now, uh, not with bananas, unfortunately, but there are varieties of banana that have from zero to 8,500 micrograms per 100 grams. And if we look at some of the small island developing states where they do have local bananas, uh, we have seen for example, in um, Micronesia, the Federated States of Micronesia, in the 60s and 70s, people departed from their traditional food system. They were eating imported food. The children were suffering extensively, a high prevalence of micronutrient malnutrition to the extent that there was blindness in the population. One of the deficiency diseases of extreme vitamin A deficiency is blindness in children. Uh, so WHO went in there with supplements and uh, trying to find these, these children to give them injections or tablets of vitamin A. At the same time, an American researcher uh, was looking at the neglected natural biodiversity that used to be part of their traditional food system. She found these bananas in the woods or in the forest. Uh, she saw that they were uh, deeply colored and Beta-carotene is a bioactive pigment. It's, it's, its content in fruits, for example, is represented by this deep orange color. She had them analyzed, and, it, and then um, through her efforts, uh, we, they were promoted. These bananas were promoted in the population and the, uh, in the island communities now where, where they have revitalized the production of these bananas. There is no vitamin A deficiency anymore. And it's an ecosystem cure, relying on the, um, the traditional foods uh, out of that agroecological zone that brings food and nutrition security to populations. I think that's a really pertinent example. Um, and of course, um, <laughs> I also love that fact about bananas. And it's, it's interesting to see that, you know, you're. Someone mentioned context earlier, and I think Barbara, what you're illustrating there is you're you're able to adapt to the context of the diets and and location in which these people live to provide that, as you say, ecosystem cure. And so, William, what are what are your thoughts on the on the healthy food choices from sustainable agriculture recommendation? Yeah, so I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, you know, why do we have unhealthy food from unsustainable sources and 
Unfortunately, the United States is a classic example of this. We have a subsidy structure that encourages the overproduction of a small number of commodity crops. And where I live in the upper Midwest in the US, that's primarily corn and soybeans. And so we have so much corn, we don't know what to do with it. So we turn it into things like high fructose corn syrup. Uh, we use it in feedlots. Uh, we use it for ethanol production, even when it's not the sort of most efficient source matter. Uh, and so this creates uh, a host of environmental problems. We've seen the simplification of farming systems in the upper Midwest. We have a major soil erosion problem a lot of this goes down the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico and creates a massive uh, dead zone. So, you know, I think revising that subsidy structure, um, I'm not necessarily against subsidies, but um, uh, because many farmers are struggling, but a wider array of crops and especially healthy crops, including vegetables, which receive no subsidies. I, th I think there are a couple of really you know, encouraging examples. And I'll just quickly mention a, a couple. One is in my own backyard in St. Paul, Minnesota. We have uh, a lively farmer's market scene, including uh, among farmer's market. And most of the vendors and customers are immigrants from Cambodia, Laos area and Southeast Asia. And they produce, you know, um, culturally appropriate vegetables for that community a lot of these on smallholder plots uh, and they produce them in a sustainable way and they're doing that almost completely uh, on their own and just think what they could do uh, with, with a little more support. Another really interesting example I think comes out of Brazil and in particular the case of the Food Security Council in Belo Horizonte. They in the 1990s um, expanded on a traditional idea of popular restaurants as a way to get healthy food to low-income people. And so they were sourcing food from local farmers, um, you know, really healthy, diverse meals, but low cost. Um, everybody paid a small fee to enter these restaurants, um, but there was no stigma and people from all walks of life went there. And that's totally different than, you know, the system of, of food kitchens that we have in the U.S. that, you know, there's stigma attached with those. And oftentimes they're trying to stretch their dollars, especially in COVID times, and they're buying the cheapest food available. And a lot of times that's not uh, especially healthy or nutritious food. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it seems like there's some good examples of, of creative ways to start to combat this. And then it also seems like an, an area kind of like ripe for uh, some new, interesting, innovative ideas. Mm -hmm. So before we wrap up, I, I want to go back and discuss a little bit more about context. And this comes from one of the additional report recommendations of addressing specific needs of diverse rural and urban contexts. So could each of you, Tell me a little bit more about this and the role that investment and policy adoption can play in it. Barbara, I'll start with you again. Okay. I might use a, a kind of obscure example um, related to meat eating versus non-meat eating. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and bringing it into the realm of context. Let me address this issue of context 
related to uh, an example of meat eating versus non-meat eating. The second International Scientific Symposium on Sustainable Diet Diets had the sub-theme Livestock and Human Nutrition. And everybody knows that uh, livestock production contributes to um, contributes to greenhouse gas emissions and uh, and exacerbates uh, climate change. But there and there have been recommendations uh, that are broad based that say eat less meat across the world, uh, produce fewer livestock. Um, and, and, and this is a good recommendation, I think, uh, in many cases, but there are places in the world where this is not. And again, this relates to context. So for example, this conference was held in Mongolia. Mongolia is a country that depends on livestock sector. It is extensive livestock rather than intensive livestock. Uh, but they, if they did not have livestock, if they did not consume high levels of meat and dairy, they would suffer extreme micronutrient malnutrition. Uh, but it also brings into the context the ecosystem. So their main livestock animal is a horse. It's a, it's a local breed of horse in Mongolia, and it provides them with their omega-3 fatty acids, their N-3 fatty acids. You would, most people looking at Mongolia, nutritionists, uh, a landlocked country, chronically food insecure based on the, the metric of dietary energy supply, they would ask, where does the population get their omega-3 fatty acids? They're very long-chained, highly unsaturated um, fatty acids. And the answer is the meat and dairy of this horse. Why? There's a genetic characteristic of the horse coupled with the native pasture uh, where they feed uh, that allows them in their meat and milk to deliver to the population an adequate level of omega-3 fatty acid. So this is one example where that kind of broad brush recommendation wouldn't be applicable. The population would suffer not only if they didn't eat meat, but even if they changed their production from extensive, meaning pasture-fed, to intensive by bringing in, a, let's say, a higher uh, yielding dairy animal, or let's say um, a different feeding regime that, uh, that gave concentrated nutrients in a different form. You change any one, one thing in this system, a different breed, a different feeding regime, and the net result would be the population wouldn't get their omega-3 fatty acids. So I, it, and we don't know these things until we study them, but we don't study them. Uh, and this was um, kind of an accidental discovery in research, but there are many situations where the traditional diets are providing the, the nutritional adequacy that populations need to change something in that equation, which is people and ecosystems and the biodiversity within that ecosystem. And you create problems. So we need to study this more. And, uh, and, but I think it's a clear illustration about the interconnectedness of these things, nutrition, agriculture, and environment. William, what are your thoughts on addressing the specific needs of the diverse rural and urban contexts? Yeah, let me give you 
two specific examples, and they're both from Africa where I do most of my research. So um, I'll give you a rural example, which is a bit of a success, uh, and then an urban example that's um, a sort of a continuing problem. But in both cases, context is really important. So the first is from Burundi, which is a small landlocked uh, country in sort of Central East Africa, uh, very, very densely populated, uh, one of the poorest countries in Africa, majority rural, and it's dominated by smallholders with really small plots. We're talking like 0.2 hectare plots, and it's a very sort of mountainous and hilly country, so a lot of people are cultivating on slopes. In addition to being quite poor, uh, Burundi is geopolitically isolated um, uh, because uh, the former president ignored term limits and a lot of donors left. And I'm mentioning all this because the in recent years, there's been a big push for the new green revolution for Africa. There's this idea that the first green revolution, you know, the introduction of improved seeds, pesticides and fertilizers in Asia and Latin America, that this sort of bypassed Africa. And so there's a special focus on Africa now. The challenge in Burundi is that, um, because of the geopolitical isolation and the poverty, there's no way you can they can afford to buy these inputs to improve production. So ILRI, which is the International Livestock Research Institute, has had an ongoing um, sort of action research project there that is focused on crop livestock integration. And I think they've done really innovative things. Instead of using improved breeds, they've taken sort of traditional local breeds um, they've encouraged people to engage in penning rather than letting the animals uh, roam around. This allows you to collect the manure that you can then use on your fields to boost production. And then the, the sort of byproducts of um, the crops that you're not using, you then feed to the animals. So it's a way of intensifying agriculture, producing more food without um, expending a lot on inputs. The second example is from South Africa. And South Africa, like a lot of areas in the global South, has experienced what we call supermarketization. So uh, supermarkets are expanding into country, in, in the country and moving into increasingly poor neighborhoods. And this, on the surface, seems like a good thing. Um, many of your listeners are probably you know, familiar with the problem of food deserts, areas where uh, people don't have access to, um, you know, food retail outlets or healthy sources of food. And in South Africa, you've seen this sort of segmentation of the market, and we have some supermarkets that are going for higher income customers and some that are going for lower income customers. And there a lot of these, the, the latter group are moving into townships, which are these poor neighborhoods in many South African cities. Um, and historically, it's part of the legacy of apartheid. But as these supermarkets are moving in, what they are sort of nudging out and marginalizing are the traditional small shops. And the problem there is that those small shops really um, historically catered to the needs of poor consumers. They would sell fresh produce or they would sell um, food in really small quantities that people could afford, or they would extend people credit 
and, and a lot of this is not happening with the larger uh, supermarkets. So, you know, it sort of looks like there are more supermarkets that it's that, you know, these formal food outlets are, are, are there's more of them yet. Uh, that process is kind of squeezed out a source of food for the poorest of the poor. Hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's un unintended consequences um, or things that are, you know, again, I think you both are doing a really great job of, of illustrating the fact that the solution to ending hunger is going to be a multifaceted and, and complicated one. Um, and there, and there is no simple solution. It's a complex problem. And I do wonder, you know, are there any sources of hope in this area? Of course, it's a dire situation, and reports like this are quite important. Do you see any any beacons of hope in this area um, that give you hope for 2030? Some of the examples I gave, I think, are encouraging. That example I just cited in Burundi, mm -hmm. uh, the Hmong Farmers Market in St. Paul, I think with COVID-19 in the U.S., we've seen um, a huge upsurge in um, fresh produce from um, CSAs, um, uh, and, and and so that that's that's all pointing in the in the right direction. Um, there are still a lot of problems, um, but I'm by nature an optimist, and um, <laughs> I'm I'm hopeful that we'll. we'll, we'll move things in the right direction. And, and I think consumer demand uh, is coming around to these issues. And I'm hopeful too that, that not only the uh, focus on better nutrition through diversity, including biodiversity, together with consciousness about environmental damage and how that affects our food supply, think uh, marine finfish and shellfish, uh, that uh, and the the livestock industry too, with the greenhouse gas emissions and things. I'm hopeful that the this kind of awareness and the kind of activism we're seeing, especially in young people, uh, that gives me hope. The very next report out of the high level panel of experts uh, will be on youth engagement in food security. So that's one to look forward to. Oh, excellent! Definitely looking forward to that. Well, again, thanks to both of you for joining me today virtually and, and, and talking about such a complex issue. If any of our listeners are interested in the report, it will be linked in the show notes and in the post. Um, it's titled Food Security and Nutrition, Building a Global Narrative Towards 2030. If you're enjoying Food Disruptors, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us at IFT on Twitter and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Food Disruptors. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden. Have a great day, everyone.